Podcast of the Cinema. Uh, Who are you? I'm Alonzo Duraldi. You are Dave White. Yep. We are film critics for the rap. Yes. I host other podcasts. You do. We're married to each other. Yes. That's all you need to know. And this, uh, we ran out of what a what a what a. It's a discombobulated afternoon. <laughs> How so? Well, you know, I like it when things go. Um, my way. <laughs> I'd noticed that. And I was really hoping to get in some good laundry hanging up. Mm. But then you couldn't do laundry because someone in our building is using the machine. It used to be There's if I... one machine in our building. Yeah, and it used <laughs> to be if I avoided the weekends, I pretty much, you know, had it to myself. But now there's there's another weekday washer in the building, and they're getting in my way. I think I know who it is. Okay. We and I have discussed who we think it might be. I, yeah, it's possible. <laughs> and why. Yes. But um, it's, uh, you know, I think, honestly, that everyone else should have to go to a different location to do their laundry. <laughs> Except us. There should be seniority. Like, uh, we've lived in this building longer than <laughs> anyone else. Well, that's true. If it comes down there to that, are 12 we, we apartments. Are the yes. There are 12 apartments in our building, and we are the old people. Mm. They should all have other accommodations <laughs> for their life. I don't think this is unreasonable for me to ask. I, I, you know, they're young, <laughs> jump about, go different places quickly. I'm very slow and. You know, as I said, I think things should just go my way. I see. The other thing Mm -hmm. that isn't going my way is this tea. The tea that will never die. It seemingly never ends. (laughs) And I only was, I'm only drinking it so that I didn't make you gross out over a green smoothie. I, you oh, can, I see. You I consume see. whatever no. you want. I don't no, care. no, no. I see. I, you make the puke face when I make the green smoothie. You go. And when has that ever stopped you from anything? Like, like you're actually you you make a th- you make a throw up face. Like I'm gonna <laughs> I'm gonna have some throw up right now. Dave is putting a bunch of leafy greens in the blender to make a smoothie. Look, and I know that's a thing. I see people I know online, and they'll, they'll post their recipes, and I was like, mmm, you know, I, I whipped up all this kale and mixed it with <laughs> fruit, and it's so good I'm for me. I'm not saying it tastes wonderful. I'm saying it's part of my lifestyle now. I understand that. It just grosses and, me out. I'm sorry. And, and you make a puke face every time I uh, talk but or your, do. Your health is paramount. It's very paramount. So, so is my you, laundry. If you need to make things a, better start going my <laughs> if way. If you need to make a gross smoothie, then you do that. 
someone's in the way of the machine, mm-hmm. and you're in the way of my smoothie. Yes. Poor you. Here's the other thing that's weird this week. We saw one movie in common, <laughs> and it's a film from 1934. Yeah. Yeah. Um, in a way, this is kind of your ideal week because we're only talking about like <laughs> stuff I'm really into. indie art house stuff. Because <laughs> I talked about Doctor Strange last time, and nothing but Doctor Strange. Oh, I, I'll tell you what, I, big over the weekend because nobody wanted what. to be in its way. I knew last week when we talked about Doctor Strange that this week was going to be all subtitles, mm. nothing all but the time, nothing but subtitles. <laughs> Except for Fashions of 1934. Yes. Which we watched the other night on uh, Turner Classic Movies. Mm-hmm. And I'm blanking on the director. Uh, William Dieterle. Dieterle, that's right, that's right, that's right. But, you know, it, it, when, when it comes up, like, for example, the way that it came up on TCM, TCM yes. it's generally considered a... Busby Berkeley movie because if anyone remembers Fashions of 1934 it is because of Busby Berkeley's contributions. I I'm going to disagree with you. Yes, the Busby Berkeley sequence. Yes. In the middle of the film is as they all are stunning and the kind of thing that makes a person scratch their head um <laughs> because they take place outside of 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 the space presented in the film. Yes. They take place in in real spaces, but they also take place in obviously in the movie is telling you this, in some sort of imaginary fantasy land where on a on a limited size stage suddenly uh a, a you know several hundred people can be, you know, making kaleidoscopic shapes with Costumes and their bodies, yeah. and you know, waterfalls and and, uh, and, and boats, cor- and, 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 and doing choreography that can only be appreciated by someone who is watching from the raft from above. Yeah. So yes, yeah, so if you watch, that's what's happened to cooking videos. The yeah. Busby Berkeleyfication of <laughs> cooking videos. But that's everything's shot from straight above. But that, that I mean, come it on, didn't used to be that. Oh way. yes, it did. Sue nope. Ann Nivens talks about having an overhead shot. I remember as a kid seeing a overhead kid, but shots. But not exclusively. Stuff. Like, you see now on the internet, it's like... Oh, the whole thing. The whole thing is... Well, yeah. When yeah. You're, those sped up videos where people are dumping in things. Right. That's all, yeah. yeah. But, um, no, in a Busby Berkeley movie... And then wrapping it in a pancake and putting it in a tote bag. Exactly. The, pouring the, chili into it. The story <laughs> will be set in, like, you know, people who are putting on a theatrical show or a right. nightclub show or a whatever. And then when the show actually begins, like, the curtain will part and there will be, like, people on the stage. And then some of the camera will just kind of keep going back. Yeah. And suddenly we're on a sound stage. Suddenly you're outside. Or yeah, you're, or whatever. You're in the ocean. Or <laughs> it's anywhere. <laughs> Uh, Fashions of 1934 stars William Powell yes, uh, and Betty Davis yes. primarily, although Betty Davis might have the fewest lines in the script and the most face. Yeah, so the most glances. She, this is ingenue Betty, Betty Davis. Yeah, she's like 25 uh, when they made this. And it's about a guy who's basically a, a, a grifter Yeah, uh, who... Has a, 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 it's very timely for the depression because he's a washed up 
uh, stockbroker. Yeah, he's always working the angles. And uh, he decides he's going to get into a new racket, uh, pirating fashions from Paris. Yes. So he finds a fashion designer, uh, it's Betty Davis, and she's like, you want to do what? And he's like, we're going to become criminals. And she's like... Fine, I guess. And then they they wind up in Paris, impersonating. They 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 run into a countess who's an old friend of 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 of, of uh, William Powell's uh, William Powell, and she's from from Hoboken, but she's impersonating a countess, yeah. and uh, she's married to she's uh, about to marry a she's big designer. About to marry a big fashion designer, uh, who later in the film she threatens with exposure for his habits. Mm. She calls them. Habits. Oh, they never mentioned what the Something habits about are. His love life. This also, is a right? pre-code movie, so yeah. there's all kinds of horny stuff going on. Oh yeah, so many like models lounging about in lingerie in and like bikini, yeah, looking stuff like two-piece bikini uh, uh, ensembles. Um, there's a subplot about uh, Powell's uh, sidekick who's trying to find a place for him. Uh, for himself and and a, and, a, and a chorus girl to like you know do it, and um, there's there's a stick in the mud like Baxter guy for Betty Davis to maybe be in love with even though <laughs> obviously she belongs with William Powell because he's William Powell. But they, their romance is like nothing. Oh yeah, no. she's irritated by him for the most of the film, and, and he keeps trying to get her to come to come with him to Berlin. And we're like, oh yeah, that's where you want to go in nineteen. You're sitting, we're sitting on the couch. She's like, I'm headed to Berlin. I'm like, no, 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 no. Don't do that. That ends well for no Don't one. Don't go there right now. Um, do not move in next door to Sally Bowles. So the uh, uh, so then the Busby Berkeley number happens, and it's ostensibly uh, a fashion show. Yeah. And well, it's a kind of kind of it's a it's a, it's a theatrical review that involves a lot of ostrich feathers, right. Because of another subplot. <laughs> The best person in the movie is the the wisecracking secretary, <laughs> who uh, in the first scene, uh, guy comes to repossess the phones from William Powell, and uh, the sidekick walks in after the guy's taking the phones out. Sidekick guy walks in. He goes, "Where are they taking the phones? Where, where what's going on with the phones?" And the wisecracking secretary says, "He's taking them for a walk." <laughs> Frank McHugh plays the wisecracking sidekick, and he's well. A, he's he's not a wisecracking sidekick. He's just like a a, a goofy, horny sidekick. True. Yes. The wisecracking secretary is played by I'm blanking on her name right now, but um, Frank McHugh is played this guy in yes. like a, he was. This was that era where like if you had your niche, like they would just have you do that. In fact, in another William Powell movie, one of my favorites, One Way Passage, right. Where, uh, where, where William Powell uh, is being shipped back to America on a boat to be executed, and he falls in love with Kay Francis, who is an heiress who is dying of a mysterious disease, and so neither of them know as they fall in love that the other that, that they're both going to be dead within like weeks of the of the boat returning to San Francisco. Uh-huh. Anyway, uh, Frank McHugh and and uh, Aileen McMahon played the like sort of conniving sidekicks who keep the you know. Keep the law off of uh, William Powell so he can continue to canoodle with Kay Francis. Even though Dorothy Burgess yes. is the wisecracking secretary. Um, she's also the woman who, every time trouble shows up, she's like, you know what? I'm not good with this sort of thing, so toot 
toot. Yeah, she always bails as Puts soon as... Puts a hat on and says, toot, apart. toot, before she walks out. And then as soon as, like, you know, he's got a new scheme going and there's more money, she mysteriously appears again. Yeah. Time for some payment. Uh, this is a silly movie about nothing, and it is great. <laughs> I'm looking up Dorothy Burgess. Her last credit is in 1943 for a movie called The West Side Kid, and she plays... Toodles. <laughs> and well, she should. Yeah. Uh, so if you get a chance. Fashions of 1934. Fashions, Fashions of 1934 is aces. Solid entertainment. It's swell. Oh, that's one of my other favorite moments. When they're in Paris and they walk up to a, a, a news agent, you know, uh, person. And, you know, he says in, in French, do you speak English? The guy says, of course. And William Powell says, swell. <laughs> also, it's 70. Not, uh, that was kind of new hip slang back then. <laughs> it's 78 minutes. So if you are. Yeah, it's, the the, perfect, it's the perfect film if, length. If you're of the Pete Davidson school and you're looking for something short, this is the film for you. Is it, is it Saturday night and you're already sleepy and you've put on your pajamas and you've got just enough in you? For 78 minutes of television <laughs> that, before bedtime. You realize this is it. That's your Saturday night. That's always my Saturday night. <laughs> Almost no one else's. <laughs> you know what? I like a cozy routine on Saturday night. I, I I'm not out here running around going out to the club with the young people. You'll note I'm next to you on the sofa. My dinner for these things, happens, and, and then I, I don't need know. To, like, who are you fighting with on this? The cozy maybe... clothing and <laughs> something. Very old. Yeah. On Turner Classic Movies. We're not being paid by Turner Classic Movies no. to talk about this. Uh, we just love them. Yeah. We keep ca- we keep cable for TCF. Yeah, basically. We keep cable for TCF. <laughs> and currently they have an ad for their things that has my puzzle on it, even though oh, yeah, 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 it doesn't yeah, mention yeah. me, but you can see the puzzle. And you, I mean, you're not... Yeah, I'm t- Explain the puzzle because a lot of people still don't even know. For those who missed this, okay, so uh, Alonzo wrote a puzzle. I wrote a puzzle. No, TCM uh, puts out a line of books and accessories, I guess you could call them. And uh, one of the things they have out this month is a jigsaw puzzle. It's a 500 piece puzzle, double sided. One side gives you 50 legendary Hollywood leading ladies, the other side gives you 50 legendary Hollywood leading men. Right. And so I had some say in who they included. I, I, I participated in the you brainstorming the, of... You drew up the lists. I, yeah. Yes, and, they, and then they there was a lot of back and forth. They, and then they said no to lots of them. Exactly. <laughs> uh, no, they were... They, they, a lot of mine got through. And then right. uh, and then I wrote a the booklet that comes with the puzzle that has like 100 mini bios of all of the movie stars that are depicted in the puzzle. And so uh, it is. It is new, and it is part of TCM's thing. So if you're watching TCM like right now, they have an ad for like yeah. they have a new book about pops, like a puzzle pops up between every movie. Yeah, they have a book about action <laughs> movies. They have something else, and they have this puzzle. And so you know. Now, when I said earlier that we are not getting paid to talk about TCM, that is correct. You did get paid a flat fee yes. to write the booklet for the puzzle, but you don't make a penny off of any they sell. Exactly. Yeah, they could they could they could remake this puzzle for the next ten years and you've been paid exactly. the end. Yes. Um and so I wanted that to be I wanted that to be clear. Like yes. you weren't pitching a thing that nope. you're making uh, nope, nope, a nope. profit off of that check got cashed yeah. in twenty twenty one. 
But hey, look, if you want to make it a hit puzzle so they come back to me and think that I have the magic touch for yeah. puzzle writing. Puzzle man. Sure. <laughs> no complaints here. Uh, and if we want to talk about other uh, uh, services, the Criterion Channel is killing it this month. Oh, yeah. They have a whole Richard Linklater section. They have a Juzo, mm, yeah, they they Juzo Atami section yeah. with stuff that you cannot get on physical media in this country, including the very funny supermarket woman, which Dave got me a region 10. I don't know where the <laughs> hell you, what country this is from. The minute you expressed, this is several years ago, you expressed interest. You're like, I've seen, you know, uh, uh, Tampopo, but I really want to see supermarket woman. And I was like, what's a supermarket woman? And you said, it's about a woman who works in a supermarket and she loves it. (laughs) And I was like, this sounds like a wonderful film. (laughs) So I started hunting for it because it's impossible to find. And eventually, this is, y'all, would you like to be the king of Christmas? This is how you do it. You're, 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 the love of your life says, I really want to see blah, blah, blah. I really want to read so-and-so. I really want to get my hands on a blah, 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 whatever it is. Make a little note. Keep a little file on Go, your phone uh-huh, or your and play it yeah. cool. Pretend, but... like you, pretend like you're barely listening, but you're always listening. <laughs> and, and then you get on the hunt. And I got on the hunt for a supermarket woman. Um, and it was... A good two or three years yeah. before I found somebody decided. I want to say the it, it's an it's not even a bootleg. No, somebody no. in Korea, like South Korea, put it out, and so I got you a Korean DVD with English subtitles, and it did have English subtitles. Yeah. And so I anyway, you can that wa- into the Christmas stock. You can there. watch it on Criterion now. I'm telling you all that what I am is a champion. You are. Yeah. No question. But you can watch that on Criterion Channel this month. Uh, there's a whole Ida Lupino section that I, mm. I'm sure you're going to be digging into. Yes, I will. With both hands. She's a tough talker. Yeah. That's what I like <laughs> from back in those days. I like a woman that says snappy things to people. Well, sure. You know. Uh, St. Eve Arden, let us not forget. You know. <laughs> No, it's just the first, uh, the first uh, uh, Ida Lupino movie I ever saw was at the now destroyed, raised in its Bing entirety. Bing Theater at LACMA. Bing Theater at LACMA uh, called Roadhouse. And some guy tries to get fresh with her, like in the first five minutes. Yeah. And she like smacks him and she's like, little boy. <laughs> and that's all she says. <laughs> she's like, little boy. And in that moment, I was like, oh, (laughs) my new queen. (laughs) (laughs) And like pretty much the only woman directing in Hollywood after Dorothy Arzner and before Joan Micklin Silver. I mean, like the the, the very... uh... She was not just this person on screen. She was this person off screen and she got things done. Mm Mm-hmm. Uh, she got her films made that she wanted to write and direct, and she did it. Yeah. She was cool. Yeah. And later she was on Columbo. That's right. <laughs> Twice. In a wig <laughs> with Johnny Cash. <laughs> <laughs> one with Johnny Cash, and who's in the other one? There's 
I don't remember. She had the same wig on in both episodes. From she's playing different characters. <laughs> Roddy McDowell. She brought that wig from home. Uh, maybe. <laughs> but in the Johnny Cash one, she's wearing some Western ensemble. Oh yeah, she is. Some doozies. She was she was great. If you don't know Ida Lupino, yeah, get to know Ida Lupino. Uh, I'm glad you did. But let's talk about what this podcast is really about. Yes, the current the cinema. current cinema. <laughs> of course. Uh, I saw two films. You saw one. Yes. Neither of us have seen the films the other. <laughs> that the other. Uh, it just happened that way yeah. this week. You had to review. Did you write the review of Happening? No, I reviewed it for Breakfast All You day. reviewed it for Breakfast All Day. I wrote, a re- so Happening is a French yes. uh, drama. Um, I saw uh, the Italian film, uh, well, Italian Argentinian co-production called The Tale of King Crab. And then the new film from the great and extremely prolific uh, South Korean director Hong Sang-soo. His new film is called In Front of Your Face. Which has opened in New York and is coming to Los Angeles this week. What do you want to go? You want to do Happening First? Well, why don't you do? Why don't no? Why don't you do one so that way it's not me and then bang bang exactly. All right. Uh, So in front of your face. As I said, from Hong Sang Soo. And Hong Sang Soo is the filmmaker who worked at a fairly normal uh, pace until 2009. Like his first movie came out in 1996, the day. Oh, wow. The day Pig Fell Into a Well, and then 98 was The Power of Kangwon Province, which they released. I have seen that one. Thank you. I knew you had (laughs) seen something. Okay, that's the one I've seen. The Power of Kangwon Province is from 1998, and it yeah. just got a reissue last year. Right. Uh, and he made, I don't know, seven or eight movies from between 96 and 2009. Since 2009, hang on, I'm just going to count here. <laughs> okay. Since 2009, he has made approximately 18 films. Yikes. He makes a couple of them a year. And his working methods are uh, fast, uh, low budget, and his writing process is quite often a thing where he works with the actors, not not necessarily in an improvised sort of way, but he writes up pages and then sort of just gives them to the, the actors uh, each day. Mm-hmm. And his shoots can take two weeks. But he writes dialogue. He's not just giving them like a, a skeletal like No, he situation. writes dialogue. Um, and they, they, they go, they do quick and, 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 and fast. Gotcha. Both, both. Quick and fast. Quick and wow. fast, yes. Um, not that you would know it. Uh, it's not like this is, it does nothing looks cheap. You know what I mean? It's not, sure. it, he works on a very limited scale. It's not like trauma. <laughs> very small scale. But these are, but that this process really works for him because these are always uh, small, intimate, dialogue heavy 
films. I guess if you wanted to compare him to someone in history, uh, it would be maybe Eric Romer. Mm-hmm. Because Romer's people talk and talk and talk and talk and talk, and the camera kind of stays on them yes. while they talk. In a Hong Sang-soo film, people can sit at a cafe table, and they frequently sit at cafe table, <laughs> having conversations that last 10 minutes, 15 minutes. The, 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 the main sequence of this new film is a, is a upwards of 30-minute uh, conversation. Okay. So uh, some of the films he's made that were, you know, released in the U.S. and got, you know, good reviews. Uh, right Now, Wrong Then, On the Beach at Night Alone, uh, Hotel by the River, Woman on the Beach. At Night Alone. No, different. <laughs> different beach. Gotcha. Okay. Same woman. So... um Last year, The Woman Who Ran uh, came out. That might have been, no, it was 2020, sorry. So, you could also say that his films are very unified in terms of their their style. Mm -hmm. Because they, and and, and they, they seemingly all exist in the same universe. He uses a lot of the same actors over and over. Um, they aren't necessarily playing the same characters, right. but you know. So this he has one, a company. Yeah. Well, he has favorites. Gotcha. <laughs> yeah. And to the to the extent that you know, like he had a, an involvement with one of his actresses the, yes. that was something uh, of a scandal. He, and, yeah, he had it was a it was quite the scandal. Yeah. Uh, he's married. Well, currently he's separated. Mm-hmm. Um, but he uh, had an ongoing affair. With uh, the actress Kim Min Hee, who was a star of several of his films, and even after the affair was disclosed at a press conference for the movie that they were making, um, talk about wow, you know, just laying it out for everybody. Um, they kept working together, and he stayed married. Is do we know like how his films are? Received in South Korea, in terms I do not of like, know if he's like a big mainstream. I don't know. Okay. I, I'm, I'm going to guess that the situation that you and I experienced the time we were in Paris, mm-hmm. where we were on the the subway and there were a a dozen giant subway sized movie posters for films that are absolutely mainstream action films and comedy films that will only play in France and we will never see in the United States because not only do uh, films from other countries that arrive in the U.S., you know, uh, not only are they obviously in the language (laughs) from that country, uh, but they are tend, they tend to be very specific types of films from sure. those countries. They are they're art house films in those countries, right? As well, and so I'm not gonna say that people are flocking out to see Hong Sang Soo films in South Korea. So I wrote a review of this film uh, and it posted on the Wrap uh, this past weekend. That review goes into much more detail than I will give to you now because there's no point in recapping uh, 
the action in its entirety. A woman is visiting Seoul and staying at her sister's apartment. The woman has been living in the United States for uh, many years. And so she and the sister are somewhat uh, estranged. There's affection, but they don't know each other really anymore. And they want to they want to rebuild that as much as they can. Sure. Uh, they go for a walk. And they spend the morning getting coffee and walking through a park and talking about life. They part ways. The woman continues on her walk. She goes to the home where they grew up. And she's allowed inside. Mm-hmm. She realizes it was a bad idea. She doesn't want to be there. She has very sort of heavy memories about being in the house. And then the next stop is she's meeting with a film director who, through the course of the conversation, you get uh, a sort of inside inside baseball sort of understanding that this director is kind of like Hong Sang-soo. Right. Uh the reason she's meeting uh, with the film director is because she used to be an actress uh, at one point in the uh, walk with her sister in the morning. They are stopped by a person who says, were you on television once? And she says, yes, a long time ago. After she moved off to the United States, she stopped acting. She left with some guy. That guy doesn't seem to be in the picture anymore. Um, she, uh, you know, she doesn't own a house. She works in a liquor store. She's an anonymous person. Okay. And so she meets with the act, she meets with the director, and he says, I want to put you in a film. I've seen your work from years ago, and I want to put you back on the screen. Uh, and she says, I can't. I don't have time to do this for you. And it is in that moment, after about an hour of the film has gone by, that she explains the secret she's been keeping. Mm-hmm. And then the rest of the film is obviously more conversation between her and the director. Uh, but her philosophy of life and why she's in Korea, why she has chosen to live the life she's led, and how she's living right now quite often through the film voiceover follows her it's her own voice and she's praying uh, self-talking she's not praying to anyone in particular any god necessarily in particular but it's as though she's trying to talk to herself to make herself calm she repeats saying she repeats a lot of the stuff over and over like Heaven is right in front of me if I can just see clearly what is right directly in front of me and not think about the past and not worry about the future and live in this moment. That is paradise. So like affirmations in a way. Kinda. Um, But different than if you heard someone say that kind of stuff on TikTok. (laughs) 
Well, yeah. You know what I mean? She's got some life experience. There is life experience in this woman. She's in her late 50s. And this is hard-earned. And you know it from the beginning of the film that she's not just some, you know, spiritual wellness person. (laughs) She's got stuff going on in her life that she has not disclosed. And one of the wonderful things that Hong Sang-soo does and what he can accomplish through just dialogue and just faces reacting to the things other people are saying and small gestures and movements that might otherwise go unnoticed. They are something that you should pay attention to because that is his cinema. That is what you're getting. So when she gets a stain on her blouse in the first 20 minutes of the movie and then wonders what she should do about it, in the process of having a conversation with her sister who has had a dream the night before but doesn't want to talk about it, you realize that what's happening with these two women, these two sisters, is that there is, uh, there are like ongoing decisions about disclosure or concealment and they come down to well tell me about your dream no what am i going to do about this stain in my blouse i don't know put on a jacket it's that kind of thing it's that small but at the same time it's that full of meaning um ultimately also quite often in a hong sang su film people are very sort of emotionally reserved and this is I've seen a lot of his movies, and this is the most emotionally sort of expansive film I've seen, where someone is in control of their emotions and stating them clearly and directly as the film goes on. At first, she's not. She's talking to herself. But by the end of the film, when she's talking to other people, she begins to state things more forthrightly. And by the end of the film, you come to this understanding of this person as very much at peace with where they are and the trouble that they have experienced and the trouble that they are maybe currently experiencing. They are, in her own words, everything is complete. It's a beautiful, beautiful movie. It it is obviously very quiet, very spare, very simple, and full of detail that matters. I really, really love it, and I, you know... If you've never seen a Hong Sang Soo film, this is a good one. Start. Start here. You can go back uh, to others uh, that he's made. They're available. He made one. He made one a few years ago with uh, uh, Isabelle Huppert. Uh, and they shot it in like eight days in Cannes hmm. during the Cannes Film Festival away from the festival. <laughs> like... He knew she was going to be there, and he was like, hey, do you want to make a movie? She's like, while I'm here? And he's like, yeah. She's like, yeah. (laughs) So they did. Uh, Called Claire's Camera. And and uh, we were just talking about fascists of 1934. (laughs) Claire's Camera is, I I, I want to say it might be 70 minutes long. (laughs) I remember seeing it at the uh what used to be the lemley music hall but is now the uh, lumiere now the lumiere i'm sorry it is 69 minutes long claire's camera i went to go see it uh i think robbie was with me i'm pretty sure 
friend Robbie who goes to art house stuff with me sometimes. Um, and there were literally two other people in the theater with us. They were two older women and they were about two rows behind us. And then when it was over, one of them turned to the other and said, that's it. <laughs> We've been here an hour. I didn't even have to go refill the meter. Right. Yeah. <laughs> I was like, don't, who doesn't check running times before they go to see a film? Those two, apparently. Yeah. So, Fashions of 1934 is actually longer than Claire's <laughs> camera. It's like the new, uh, Gaspar Noe has two new films out. Yes, and one of them is uh, like 50 One is called minutes. Vortex, but the other one is called Lux, Lux Eterna. Eterna. And Lux Eterna is like 50 minutes long. Yeah, it, it's screening in L.A. with like a Pasolini short. Yeah, uh, American Cinematheque. Listen, I saw the trailer for Lux Eterna the other day when I was seeing Tale of King Crab, which mm-hmm. I will talk about uh, in a moment. The trailer alone for Lux Eterna made me think, oh, no, 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 no. I will get nauseated and throw up if I watch this movie. Because the strobe effect, they even flash a warning before the trailer saying this trailer has intense strobe effects. Uh-huh. Uh and so I don't have like a seizure problem, but I have a nausea problem no, when I, you are strobing at me that hard. Gaspar and like Noe, the whole movie apparently is just like that way. I've never seen what's the what's the one with the dead guy narrating the whole thing and it's the he ODs and it's Why are you why are you asking me to uh, tell you titles when I'm Well not anyway, looking? you were watching it. <laughs> In our living room. I was in another room, not seeing the screen at all. And just the sound of that movie. Uh, it was is wonderful. It's an was, insane. Was, into the void. Enter the void. Enter the void. Was That's disturbing. Right. Enter the void has the greatest opening credit sequence it's, it, yeah, on the planet. You can find it on YouTube. Yeah. Uh, but seriously, just listening to that movie from another room was upsetting. And Gaspar Noe's <laughs> films are uh, very intense. Yeah. And um, a, a friend of ours told me always. that that Vortex, he had to like sit in his car for 10 minutes weeping before he could go home. Oh, my. Yeah. So Okay. Now, Vortex opens like this week. Somewhere. In L.A., yeah. yeah. Um, so. But, yeah, I don't think I can deal with uh, Lux Eterna until at least I get a DVD or something. That's fair. So that I can... So that I can be bigger than it. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yes. <laughs> like, I need not to be assaulted by strobes for 50 minutes. Like, I saw my bloody Valentine at the Santa Monica Civic Auditorium on a tour. It was like 10 years ago now, I guess. Um, and at the end, they do, they always do, you made me realize at the end, that's always their encore. And it can go on for like 45 minutes. Mm-hmm. Because um, there's this noise part in the middle of the song that just, they decide how long that noise section is going to last. Sure, it's like going to see The Grateful Dead. Kind of. <laughs> Not unlike. Yeah. Um, and although this noise section is so intense that I had to leave. I had to go stand outside on the lawn. And it was still extremely punishingly loud out on the lawn. But in addition to the extremely punishingly loud airplane taking off sounds happening from the band, uh, they got the strobes going too. Yeah, and I was like, uh, I, I have to go. I have to. I, I'm sorry. I love you, my bloody Valentine. <laughs> I must. We have to. This is the last day of our acquaintance. 
I will listen to you forever. I can't go see you live anymore. The only strobe Dave White wants is strobe we That's right. <laughs> Thank you. We're married. <laughs> I married you for a reason. That's one of them right there. Uh, all right. So, happening, um, which opened last Friday uh, in New York and Los Angeles, um, right on the heels of the announcement, the leaked news uh, regarding the Supreme Court uh, apparently overturning Roe v. Wade. So, they're fixing to. Terribly, terribly timely because this is a movie that is set in the early 60s in France when abortion was illegal. And uh, it is about a young college student played by uh, Anna Maria Bartolome who uh, gets pregnant. And it's not good. Um, she is a college student. She's trying to get ready for these big exams that she has to pass to, to continue on. Uh, she comes from a working class family. Her mother, played by legendary French actress Sandrine Bonner, um, runs a bar. Oh, I didn't know Sandrine Bonner's in this. Yeah. Oh, cool. Um, you know, her other friends, like one of them says, like, you know, if I don't pass these exams, I'll be on a tractor this time next year. Uh, so, you know, it's a big deal. They've really got, you know, they, they want to sort of like, you know, get out of their current sort of social status. They, they need to continue pursuing their education. Right. She gets pregnant and has nowhere to turn. Like, um, even her other friends who are to varying degrees sort of like, you know, curious and eager about, you know, expressing their sexuality are very close-minded and very judgmental about anybody who actually does. Um, and, you know, there's no, there's, there are seemingly no sort of like medical uh, op options, like, you know, doctors that she talks to are like, we can't know, I can't hear you. Right. We can't talk about this. Yeah. Um, you know, which of course drives her to to desperate measures and to to what is available, and it is, um, you know, it's a horrifying story, of course, because the idea of women not having access to uh, necessary healthcare for their uh, reproductive health is horrifying. Um, but uh, it's directed by Audrey Dewan. This is her second film, and and she won like the big prize at Venice for it. And the way that she directs it, the, I've, I've seen a lot of people compare it to the Dardenne brothers. Um, the lead character is holding so much in literally, like there's so many, like she's in so many kind of conversations with people where they're talking about, you know, exams or boys or whatever things. And she's like physically present, but you can tell she's just mentally like, what do I do? What do I do? Like, like thinking her, her minds are, her mind is somewhere else entirely. Uh -huh. And the way that they frame her in the shot really kind of gives you this impression of like, it really, first of all, bonds you to her. Like you're experiencing things the way that she's experienced them, experiencing them, but also gives you this, this understanding of like, she is not, She's not committed to this conversation. She is not involved with what's happening around her because she's got all these worries and panics that are going on inside mm -hmm. of her. Um, you know, it is a tough sit, but it is, you know, a terribly timely one, obviously, and, and a reminder of 
um, as somebody I shared on Instagram, you know, kind of just created this graphic that said, you know, you can only ban safe abortions. Right. You know, yeah. making abortions illegal doesn't make the need for abortion go away. It doesn't make, doesn't stop women from, from trying to get them. It just takes away the possibility of getting them under, you know, the proper medical supervision. Um, you know, and it's a very classist thing as well. I mean, I think that that's part of the thing about this this young woman being from a working class background. Rich people have always been able to get abortions. Right. They've always been able to get abortions for themselves, for their wives, for their daughters, for their mistresses, whatever. You know, because they have the kind of money that make doctors look the other way and not worry about what the consequences might be. But if you are not able to sort of, you know, grease the right palms or whatever, then you are left to your own devices and, um, you know, and it can be deadly. And that's what this movie is about. I remember in the 80s when this became a really big thing because I was still in the early 80s, mm. still uh, involved in the evangelical church. Yeah. And, um, and I remember having this very clear moment in my head, thinking, they didn't invent abortion in the early 70s. Yeah. It's always happened. Yeah. And so what we have now is a situation where you can get one and not die. Uh, and I remember every time the conversation would come up, I would say that to other, you know, evangelicals mm -hmm. maybe like it doesn't matter and i was like you don't care if she dies <laughs> because she needed an abortion and they're like well that's that's uh unfortunate unfortunately oh, that's oh you know God. the consequences of sin that's i would say that kind of thing and i'd say no <laughs> no we i think we view the world fundamentally differently um so, uh, yeah, that, that was always the moment they started showing us, you know, videos at church of stuff. Oh those, God. Yeah, I know. Those, was... those like, here's what happens. Another yeah, abortion, yeah. You know? mm -hmm. Um, and if you, if you're shocked by that idea that the, a church would show, you know, Whew. Churches are... Oh, that was the 1980s. The American evangelical church is, has been a breeding ground for uh, right-wing political activism since the 70s. Yeah. Um, and even before, but really got the push uh, after Roe. So, um, anyway, Manola has written a really uh, good review for this film for the New York Times. Mm. Manola Dargis. Yeah. Um, and... It's playing theatrically only currently. Yes, it like I said, it, it opened Friday at, like at IFC Center in New York, and I think the Landmark in Los Angeles, and then this Friday the thirteenth, it's going to expand wider. It'll be in more theaters here. It'll be in more cities. Good. IFC. I needed to be in a theater here. that's not the Landmark because their seats are killers. I, I hear you. <laughs> um, so for me, so other people think they're just fine. I'm not trying to talk about the landmark right so i know people the new art landmark has great seats <laughs> yeah people will be you know obviously turned off by the subject matter even if you're on board with the messaging of this film you think oh god do i want to watch this well you know uh, it is some movies have tough subjects and that's life yeah that's i mean 
if all you want is escapist entertainment, then, you know, go enjoy that. Yeah. But there's more to watching film than... And also, I would say there's more to this film than the sort of the polemic aspect of it. Obviously. It, it is... Or else it wouldn't be a good movie. Yeah, it is... Regardless it is, of how much you would agree with it. Exactly. Yeah. It is beautifully crafted. The performances are great. Um, you know, it is a rewarding experience, even though it is, again, a tough set. I've seen plenty of films that were politically right up my alley. And by the end of it, I would think to myself, would you just <laughs> shut up? I hate your movie. I, I agree with everything you're saying. And I want you to never make another <laughs> film again. Uh, yeah, whenever people would 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 try and tell me that, oh, you know, my biased agenda, any if it's a, if it's a queer movie, I'm going right. to give it a pass. I'm <laughs> like, can I can I point you to my review of Milk? <laughs> <laughs> well, just I remember um, there was a story from back in the Advocate days when you worked at the Advocate in the early 2000s, mm -hmm. and someone was upset at you. Oh yeah, I, I wrote a, I wrote a bad review of, of a, some, some comedy, and the queer comedy, and the producer was. The, the producers Not went happy. accosted the news editor at a yeah. party in New York and said, well, we thought the advocate would be more supportive of, you know, queer film. And that's where you'd be wrong. It's like, mm, no, <laughs> no. I mean, we were supportive in that we wrote about you. Yeah. But it doesn't mean we're going to like you if you're not good. <laughs> so. Happening. 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 Uh, listen, if it comes to the royal in those nice comfy seats. Mm -hmm. I'll be there. Okay. Yeah. All right, y'all. The Tale of King Crab. How to describe <laughs> the Tale of King Crab? Um, first of all, shout out to Josh Haratunian. I don't know if you're listening or not. Maybe you are. Super publicist. Extraordinaire. Indeed. Always hooking me up with links. Cool dude. Pushing this one. Get an email about it. I said, I know it's playing at the New Art for a week. I might not have time to run out to see it. I want to. Can you send me a link? He sends me the link. He goes, all right, I'm sending you the link. But you really need to try to get out to the New Art to see it. Because... The visual experience of this film is very important. I'm paraphrasing. Right. He weren't wrong. <laughs> I went last week. Uh, I, I do wonder what the audience... I wonder what the new art box office was for this film because I went at uh, 5 o'clock on a Wednesday... Showing it like two, maybe three times a day. And there were four other human beings. Mm. Uh, and the New Art is not a small uh, house. It's big. It's oh, a yeah. big old one-screen theater built in the 30s, 20s, whenever it was built. Um, and, uh, but this is a, this is a, we're the, you know they talk about movies that are hard to sell. Hard to market. Sure. I can't imagine who had to market this film and how they were able to accomplish it because it's such a strange movie. Yeah. What's the elevator pitch? 
There isn't one. <laughs> Give me your 25 word or less, you know, like high concept. It is the uh, 19th century and it is Italy. There is a drunk wild man who runs around the village. Uh, uh, his father is a doctor, so he kind of is dissolute. Hmm. And he's in what love are you with saying? He's not, well, you know how these kids turn out. <laughs> how dare you? Children of doctors. <laughs> Gotta watch out. They turn into drunkards. Or other doctors. Profligate. <laughs> you name it. Oh, you know Violent, me. Violent. Wild. Love a, I love a wine sack. <laughs> Go on. Uh, so he is... Uh, at, at one point in the movie, someone describes him as, as the ghost of the town. <laughs> that's how... That's how ubiquitous he is, how irritating he is, and how unwelcome he frequently is wherever he goes because he is falling down drunk. But he's fallen in love with a young woman whose father uh, hates him, <laughs> obviously. <laughs> and uh, in addition to this situation, uh, the drunk man uh, is also uh, sort of at a sort of feud with the local prince. <laughs> And this one-sided feud with the local prince uh, turns violent and destructive and a terrible thing happens. That's the end of part one. Part two, he's in Argentina now. (laughs) The drunk. Yes. Not drunk anymore. Nope. He's just in exile in Argentina. The terrible thing that happened that he did, got him shipped across the ocean to Argentina. Where he is now posing as a priest on the trail of a mythical treasure. Helping him locate this treasure is a giant red king crab. Why? Why not? To describe what this movie is, it's like the dream of a 200-year-old story that people, like, sit around and tell and embellish. Mm -hmm. And in fact, it begins in the current day, Uh all right, even though most of the action is set in the 19th century, the film begins in the current day with all these old men sitting around a tavern telling this story. Uh. And some of them have a certain amount of facts and the rest of them are like, yeah, but then what happened? And he's like, I don't know. (laughs) So the rest of the film is sort of like, well, here's what happened. Maybe. Or did it. Or did it. Yeah. And so it has the... It's a yarn. It has the elements of of mythology, of folktale, of, 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 you know, regional legend. Um, it is shot like a Western because it is so obsessed with the landscape and these like very, very like weather beaten human beings who inhabit this landscape who are all on the trail of the, of the, of the gold that may or may not be there. Mm-hmm. 
and it's about this one man's, you know, uh, penance, possibly his redemption. Maybe not. <laughs> it is beautiful to look at. It is visually overwhelming. It's every frame of this thing is gorgeous. And you you look at you look at shots, you know, where human beings are placed in this landscape. And if you're thinking about it technically, you're thinking, how are they choreographing <laughs> this? moment right here you know uh it's the work of two filmmakers alessio rigo de rigi and matteo uh zopis the what they have done before this film is make one documentary feature about an italian hermit hmm. and then a short version of that very same thing uh and my understanding is even though i have not seen the earlier documentary yet i'm going to because uh, these guys suddenly are fascinating to me, and whatever it, whatever trip they're on, I'm <laughs> ready to go on it with them. Um, apparently, the the opening sequence with the old men is connected to the documentary, huh. so their work has this this you know connective tissue that has gone from film to film. It stars a guy uh, named Gabriel Seeley, first-time actor. He's a visual artist. Hmm. He makes these mossy sculptures <laughs> that are as wild as any of the outdoor nature scenes that you see in this film. Um, so I would sit down and watch this again right now. Hmm. It is... I, I, it's the kind of movie that inspires film critic words that I don't like to use. <laughs> like, you know, you watch this film and you're like, oh, beguiling, you know, like you, <laughs> you, you, you think that and then you think, I'm not going out in public speaking this way. You compared it to Zama when, we, when you came home. Well, I'm not the first person to do that. Okay. Uh, another film critic, and I wish I could remember right now off the top of my head who said this, but compared it to Werner Herzog and Lucretia Martel, and 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 that was uh, uh, that floated across my field of vision before I walked into the movie. I see. So watching it, I thought, oh yeah, totally Werner Herzog, totally Lucretia Martel, specifically Zama, mm. um, and yeah, dude. Or person who wrote that review, I'm sorry, whoever you are, I wish I could remember who you, who said that right on the money. Um, it's a fascinating, weird, like, if I can tell you, here are the strangest films of 2022 that I've seen so far, top of the list okay. <laughs> so far. If it comes to your local uh, cinema, go to that big screen movie theater and see it. It's well worth your time, particularly if you like stuff that's difficult to explain after you walked out of it. <laughs> okay, then. Yeah. We have letters. Yes. Uh, one from Jay. 
they say on Lu Yi and the lack of press he gets compared to other filmmakers from China, mm. like Wong Kar Wai and Ho Xiao Xian. This is in quotes because apparently we are wrong. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> and that's not uh, unheard of because I am very stupid. Uh, Wong Kar Wai and Ho Xiao Xian are not filmmakers from China, or at least uh, with Wong Kar Wai, since he was born in Shanghai but grew up and started his career in British Hong Kong. Wong Kar Wai does not come from the same China film historical context that Liu Yi Ken came from. Ho Xiao Xian is a Taiwanese filmmaker, and Wong Kar Wai, for the most part of his for the most of his career, is considered a Hong Kong filmmaker. Not sure what he's calling himself now with everything that has happened with Hong Kong and the Hong Kong film industry in the last decade. Wong Kar Wai was not part of the Chinese film industry when he was rising up. He was in Hong Kong, so he isn't considered part of the fifth generation, fifth generation of Chinese filmmakers like Zhang Yimou, regular Gong Li collaborator and ex, or Chen Kai Gei, uh, farewell my concubine who were filmmakers from China who came up around the same time Wong Kar Wai came up. Liu Yi is considered part of the sixth generation of Chinese filmmakers, so the better comparison would be fellow sixth generation filmmaker Jia Zhang Kei, A Touch of Sin. Ah. And now I know. See, okay. here's the thing with me and geography and <laughs> nations, and I'm an idiot. And so thank you for clearing this up. Yes, Because it. I just think China... <laughs> One big place, and I am, uh, yeah. It's even bigger. I'm, I'm, yeah. But thank you, because now uh, I have a, I have homework to go do on distinctions. Yes. Yeah. We appreciate the clarity. Uh, where am I? Here we go. Charlie. Charlie here. We had some interactions in my previous lives as New Beverly Charlie and Cinefamily Charlie. I'm pleased to say I am now successfully extricated himself from the film industry, Charlie. <laughs> Bravo. Having left Los Angeles to become a teacher. I knew you. Le I knew he left Los Angeles. Yeah. I just didn't know where you went off to or what you were doing. I knew you were, I knew you were gone. Uh, on a recent episode, you enjoyed. you mentioned enjoying Hot Rod. And I think I remember Dave praising the house bunny at some point, if I'm not mistaken. I did. <laughs> I'm wondering what other movies like this you might uh, have a taste for. A categorization my friends and I dubbed basement cinema. <laughs> <laughs> I.e. suggestive and irreverent comedies you could only get away with watching in your basement away from your parents. <laughs> uh, we generally bracket this era a bit earlier than those two movies. Late 90s, early ooze the high watermark for us watching movies in our parents' basements. But both Hot Rod and The House Bunny share unmistakable qualities with our basement cinema, basement cinema canon. Think Saving Silverman, which I did not like Oof, at all. No, no. Uh, but, you know, I'd be willing to rewatch. Maybe my taste has changed. Hmm. Freddy Got Fingered, which I think is a, a masterpiece. Uh, the New Guy, The Hot Chick, Drowning Mona, Loser, The Bedazzled Remake. Oof. Man. We've been watching a lot of these titles throughout the pandemic over Zoom, as is our comfort and indulgence. I'll freely admit, almost none of these movies qualify as good by any traditional <laughs> metric. And there's almost nothing unproblematic about them. Oh, my God. Freddy got fingered. If you're a very sensitive person, you should not watch it. But I think it's astounding. 
But you two know as well as anyone that every erudite film critic holds deep in their heart a disparaged and or rightfully ignored late night comedy film they secretly can't get enough of, even if they will only admit it in their basement. <laughs> Please share any thoughts and titles that come to mind. Happy spring. Thanks for everything, Charlie. That late 90s, early ooze period, I don't uh, have a great deal of fondness for. But, you know, Super Troopers comes out of that Super period. Troopers. Uh, I think of Bubble Boy of that in that <laughs> vein. Never seen it. Uh, it's super stupid, but I enjoyed it. Um, um, hmm. But yeah, House Bunny, uh, Hot Rod for sure. Yeah. Uh, uh, How High. I giggled and giggled and giggled through How High. The Method in Red. Oh, no, no, Red I Man remember. Movie. Method Man and Red Man. I mean, look, um, I, 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 I've, I've never revisited it, and I can't begin to defend it in any way, but I, I'm the guy who laughed at Movie 43. I laughed at Movie 43, too. Apparently, to my everlasting shame, and this is this falls outside of the uh, the window that mm. he's talking about, but the Adam Sandler movie, That's My Boy, you, oh, you, you scolded me for, <laughs> I can't even remember how long, weeks after the fact, for being like, I sat next to you in the screening and I laughed my head off and, and you kept looking over at me like, what is your problem? <laughs> and then after the movie, he was like, I'm unhappy that you laughed so much. Like it's offensive to me that you laugh. Like, cause that, that movie is vile. That movie, that's my boy is vile. That movie, that's my boy is a, is a very bad and bad wrong headed movie. And yes. Like, and no one should think it's good or fun. Mm -hmm. They got me on the right day because every disgusting, offensive thing that happens in that movie, I was just like, oh. <laughs> like, now, have I seen it since it came out? No. Maybe I've become more mature since then. Mm. Maybe I haven't. Um, but it's a it is it's not a basement movie. It's a gutter movie. And <laughs> the deep, deep cellar. And I I maybe should be ashamed for how much I laughed. Like I'd have to go back and rewatch it to know exactly how horrible it is today. Mm. Because comedies like that, they age so poorly. Uh, are you um, the one champion of Little Nicky also? I liked Little Nicky. Which yes. I've never seen. <laughs> Yeah, I like Little Nicky. I like that part in Just Go For It where Dave Matthews picks up a coconut with his butt. Oh, God. Um, what else? <laughs> I can't remember. Uh, uh, oh, oh, the first uh, Larry the Cable Guy movie? Oh, yeah. The first Larry the Cable Guy movie. <laughs> Solid la <laughs> solidly laughed throughout that whole thing. and But I it might have been... That might have been situational uh -huh. because it was a Friday morning at like 11:30 a.m. They didn't screen it for the press, of course. I saw it at the Beverly Center. Yeah. Now, if y'all don't know Los Angeles at all or if you've moved to Los Angeles since the demise of the Beverly Center uh, cinema, at the top level of the Beverly Center there was a 12 screen, 14 screen, how many screens? Movie Something theater. Something like big, that. Yeah, it's now a Forever 21. In the 80s when it when it when it was fresh and new, yeah. uh apparently it was the hot place to go see a movie. Yes. Mm. 
Um, we but moved it, here in the late nineties and it was already on the skids. A little shabby. Yeah. yeah. And then it got real And then shabby. it got real on the skids. And so by the time Larry the Cable Guy health inspector yes. opened. Uh, is this that, the one that you snuck an entire? Oh no 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 no! Don't <laughs> accuse me of anything. Sorry, you proudly carried I an entire. Waltz, I waltzed <laughs> to a Strauss waltz song, like I they in the, the employees of the, the employees of the Beverly Center in the year two thousand and whatever that Larry the Cable Guy health inspector came out. They did not care about anything and this was at the this was in, at the time when the Beverly Center still had a food court so I got to the food I got to the movie theater I was starving for some kind of lunch before the movie I went to Panda Express and I got an entire entree and sides to go and I just carried it right into the theater like they saw the panda bag and not no one no, said a word and i was alone yes you texted me during that movie i texted you during the movie <laughs> i was alone eating my panda meal my panda <laughs> express meal while watching label the larry the cable guy health inspector simultaneously taking notes because i was going to write a review for whatever the hell movie website i was writing for at the time i don't even remember which one it was and texting you <laughs> on my on my flip phone that you had to text with, with mashing like, the numbers mashing the numbers three times to get the letter T um and it was bliss <laughs> I got sweet and sour pork I got orange chicken got to watch Larry the Cable Guy health inspector talk to you a little bit <laughs> take notes go home write a an all-timer of a review. Hmm. <laughs> Listen. Yeah. I don't get paid a lot, but I have my dream job. I, 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 what, part of the, the thing that was so great about Hot Rod, it was the first movie I ever reviewed for MSNBC. Right. And you and I had to drive to like... Norwalk. Norwalk. We had to go to it. Norwalk. In Norwalk, it was just a Norwalk is, from here. Norwalk is not close to where we it, live. It is deep it's in It's over an hour away. Yeah. yeah. And uh, and I just remember thinking like, oh boy, the, I'm going to Norwalk to see an Andy Samberg movie, and then we like roared laughing through the whole thing. Final letter, yes, shoddy, shoddy. Dear David Alonzo, as the new Top Gun sequel disappears the Taiwanese national flag, even Tom Cruise is about to find out that the Chinese appetite for Hollywood movies may be gone forever. Facing economic, uh, facing economic stagnation, concentration camps for Muslim minorities, and a disastrous COVID response, Beijing is trying to save face by doubling down on totalitarianism and xenophobia. All opinions expressed in a shoddy letter are, are shoddies. shoddies. I don't. The same way that I didn't know that Wong Kar Wai <laughs> and Xiao Shen. We're different than yeah, Chinese. Uh, or that's how much I understand about the current political situation uh, in Beijing right now. Uh, she continues, as Disney discovered this month, there is no entertainment or consumerism that is free of politics anymore as if it ever were in the first place. 
I, for one, am excited that this decoupling from dictatorships will actually allow Hollywood to speak its mind more freely from now on and defend our liberal values. Either way, Top Gun 2 is going to suck. P.S. Uh, sorry, it will probably suck. P.S. Sexual and reproductive rights are human rights. Sincerely. And then she links to the Top Gun Flags article and to uh, Doctor Strange 2 that had gay references cut for Saudi Arabia. Yes. You know what I love? I love a shoddy letter. <laughs> if you could, you know, parse through and figure out what does she mean? <laughs> I am. No, because here's the thing. Like, we get these links. I go learn things. Mm. Otherwise, I'm just home. I'm just at home baking stuff. Like, I need to be taught stuff. I need to be taught stuff about the differences between filmmakers and their regions. I need to be taught. I need to be taught stuff about uh, films getting their you know finer details erased for consumption in other countries. I need to learn all these things. You, shoddy list, penetrates the bubble. You, the listeners, you help me <laughs> not be a complete moron, and I thank you. And I have to go see Top Gun two tomorrow, so we'll report. Danger zone. Danger zone. Oh, and we're gonna watch. Top Gun 1. We're going to watch the original Top Gun at this month's Linoleum Knife Club meeting mm -hmm. at the end of the month. We're doing it on Memorial Day weekend. Why not? Because um, that's our only free Saturday night. Yes. And uh, if you would like to come to Linoleum Knife Club meeting yeah. and get other awesome Linoleum Knife extras like content and things. Content and things. Join our Patreon at yeah. patreon.com slash linoleum knife. Yes. Um, I hated that movie so much when it came out in 1986. <laughs> I was very punk rock. I despised it. It's just this Reagan, Reaganistic militarism. Wet you know, dream. It's, no, it's what happens uh, in the daytime that results in uh, the same effect of a wet dream. So the uh, I and I haven't seen it since 1986. So I'm. A little stoked to watch it again as a historical document. Like normally on on Linoleum Knife Club meetings, we stick to like crowd pleasers mm. that everyone's pretty much going to enjoy. I don't think this. I think is the very first time that's a hate watch. <laughs> that it's going to be a hate watch. Um, it's still a crowd pleaser because people loved that movie. It was a giant mm. monster box office hit back in the day. Um, but I remember hating every single thing about it, including Kenny Loggins and Berlin. So there you have it. Well, yeah. Bold. Don't like, to this day, <laughs> those songs are playing somewhere. I will do what I can to get away from them. I, I don't, I think danger zone. You just, you can't, there's no escape. You can't what? You can't get away from it. I oh, think uh, it, uh, I, I just Watch feel like me. I just feel like it permeated Watch me make an everything. Attempt. I'll be like that big red crab in the tail of King Crab, scuttling away <laughs> as fast as I can from danger zone. Fair enough. Or take my breath away. Yeah, that I'd I, love to. I was. <laughs> I was never down for that one. Yeah. yeah. I have to watch Top Gun again tonight to remind myself of it so I can see this sequel tomorrow. <laughs> so that's my life. <sighs> Keep that volume down because uh, I'll be asleep. Yes. <laughs> Thank you all for listening. Uh, check out my other 
podcasts, please. Max Maximum Film on the Maximum Fun Network. Uh, Breakfast All Day uh, on YouTube as well as on your favorite podcatcher. And Deck the Hallmark. We just dropped an episode today where Bran forced me to watch um, Ron Howard's Misbegotten 2000 live action version of How the Grinch Stole Christmas. It did not go well. We have very different takes on it. But next week... I don't... Okay. Can I just say something? What? Bran's nuts. Oh, stop. <laughs> Bran did make the controversial statement that his, the, the, of the three main versions of the Grinch, his least favorite is the original television anime Brand, special. Bran, if you're listening, what's wrong with you? Uh, one has to wonder. What is... <laughs> I love Bran. Yes. Very much. Um, but no human being should enjoy Ron Howard's live-action Grinch movie. It should be buried in a deep Much less hole in the ground. enjoy it more than the Chuck Jones version. It, that's what I'm talking about yeah. here. That's... I don't even know. What happened? But hey, next week, <laughs> I, I, I'm making Bran watch Frederick Wiseman's The Store, so... All right, I don't want to... I don't want to rub my hands together with glee here. Mm-hmm. My assumption is that he has never seen a Frederick Wiseman documentary. I believe that is the case. Okay. How did you set it up? I told him. Because if you have watched documentaries in your life, uh-huh. and then you watch a Frederick Wiseman documentary, yeah. it's an entirely different experience. It is. Okay. And I, I, I set him up for that. I, All said, right. I said, look, he, I said, Frederick Wiseman does not use music unless it occurs organically in the thing that he's filming. He does not interview people. He does not give you an on-screen identification of who the person is who's talking. Right. There's a lot of long takes. It's very fly on the wall. It just sort of like sits back and lets things unfold and lets you sort of experience the the places as they, you know, transpire. Which means that the store is not officially a Christmas movie. It is a movie that is set. It is a documentary set in a Neiman Marcus department store in downtown Dallas at Christmas yes. time, 1982. Yes, the flagship Neiman Marcus store. Yes. And, you know, look, I think because retail and commercialism is such a huge part of Christmas, I oh. think that makes the store an essential Christmas movie. It is a Christmas movie by the definition of your book, Have Yourself a Movie Little Christmas, on sale wherever fine <laughs> cinema essays are sold. But, like... You know, you're not you're not gathering around annually. You're just watching it as as a person who is is a student of what this holiday is about in United in the United States. Yes. In Western capitalist countries where yes. Christmas is about shopping. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Anyway, I I think I I think he's going to love it, and I think we're going to have a really oh interesting it's conversation. A fantastic about movie. It. Yeah. And I'm not saying he's not going to love it. I'm just saying I I don't want you to harm him. I don't want this to be retaliation. No, no, no. For no. how the Grinch. Stole I had Christmas. already look. Okay. We 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 both made our lists months ago, so I it's see. just coincidental that that's it's coincidental it. that the worst film that you could watch in this process is then back-to-back with the most demanding film yes. that he's going to watch. Yes. Okay. So that's just how I'm it I'm trying goes. to look out for you, Bran. 
Are you even listening to us? He right has now? nothing to fear from me. I mean him nothing but the, I mean Listen, him no harm whatsoever. You you leave a you leave destruction in your wake. <laughs> How dare you? <laughs> All right. Uh, we will catch you guys next Doctor's time. Doctors kids. Oh, That's what I'm trying to say. <laughs> Until next time. <laughs> Uh, do we get all the information yeah. out that we need to get out? Okay, goodbye. <laughs>